studying psychology, learning about uh, counseling theory and technique. It never even felt like I was in school. None of that felt like a requirement to me. So I've always been a duck to water and gravitated towards that piece of it. And as I became more and more entrenched in psychotherapy in practice and in, um, you know, in my life, I've learned to take bits and pieces of what feels right to me and, and, and implement that into my practice with people. The journey of healing through psychotherapy entails an unearthing of our authentic feelings that we have learned to shut down due to various reasons, including trauma and societal constructs. More and more, we recognize the importance of connection and relationships in our mental health. The space between two people, whether they are client and therapist, two friends or lovers, may be an essential factor in healing. back to the Soul Space Podcast. We're your host, Adrian Athal. On this episode, we have a conversation with professional counselor and educator, Phyllis Alonji. Based in New Jersey, Phyllis brings a holistic approach to psychotherapy and healing. We explore toxic relationships, the therapeutic container, sand play therapy with children, and we also tackle some sensitive mental health topics like trauma, borderline personality disorder, and suicidality. Phyllis is a Reiki and healing arts practitioner, and she is currently completing her doctoral degree in integral and transpersonal psychology. We hope you enjoy this conversation. It is our pleasure to bring you Phyllis Alonji. Welcome, Phil, to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on. Phil, I'd love to hear um, just about the early years before psychotherapy, before you found your profession. Maybe if you can share with our listeners a bit about your history. Um, you can go as far back as you feel is necessary to kind of bring us to date to how you discovered the profession and um, and why you're, you're doing it currently. Sure. I think that um, my religious background really had a lot in molding me toward the field of psychotherapy and psychology. Initially, I wanted to um, maybe be a psychiatrist. I was looking more in something a little more um, medical, more toward a medical model. I was raised a Catholic. I went to, uh, I engaged in a year of Catholic school education and I, you know, it was very prominent in my upbringing and in my family, very family oriented, Italian, New York, you know, upbringing. We were Catholic. We went to Catholic school. We all went to church. It was, there was no question that that's not how you practiced. And I knew that, you know, growing up that I needed to be connected and fulfilled because church was very peaceful for me, but it was what was happening in church that didn't settle well with me. And then throughout adolescence, I really questioned and started to doubt my faith, you know, based on some of the uh, events that happened to me. When I was 15, I was on vacation with my family um, at, on Easter Sunday and at a restaurant in vacation in Miami, Florida, my father died and had a heart attack. Mm. And so we were, my mother was 39 and widowed on spring break with her three kids. And now her husband's not here anymore. It was for us back from that. It took many, many years. I will share with you that one of my very close family members, um, developed a substance abuse issue. And I, you know, it was just, it really put a strain on our relationship and on our family. And I started to question my faith and I started to question, you know, what is my, my religion? And from these questions and these doubts and, 
you know, still the, the yearning to be connected to something, to, to my belief in a higher power. I customized Christianity and Catholicism to my own spirituality to meet my needs to connect. And so psychotherapy seemed very uh, organic in a way because it was about the human experience and it was about the things that I was gravitated towards about people, about how interesting I think the mind is and all in fact with being and, you know, try to scratch the surface and figure out why people do what it is that they do. And so I think that plus my spiritual background really propelled me into the direction. It was felt very organic, um, studying psychology, learning about uh, counseling theory and technique. It never even felt like I was in school. None of that felt like a requirement to me. So I've always been a duck to water and gravitated towards that piece of it. And as I became more and more entrenched in psychotherapy in practice and in, um, you know, in my life, I've learned to take bits and pieces of what feels right to me and, and, and implement that into my practice with people. Amazing. So you're, so it's the spiritual aspects, I guess, of psychotherapy that attracted you, um, to psychotherapy as opposed to psychiatry, you think? Um, and how would you describe psychotherapy? Yeah. Because that, you know, if we look at psychotherapy through a transpersonal lens or a, a spiritual lens, we understand that it is what's between the two people. Mm -hmm. That is something that we can't taste. We can't feel, we can't color, we can't, you know, touch, but we know that it exists. And what is it about two human beings that we can create this space between the two of us and, and be able to facilitate healing in that yet it's not something tangible and if you look at catholicism many of the mysteries and the the main focuses of what we are to believe in are not tangible mm -hmm. and so it felt very much like that you know like my it is my faith in humanity it is my faith in my spirituality in the essence of another person where i meet them in that experience but I know that it exists and that is the space for healing um Phil we just want to go back a little bit um and describe that space between two people the therapeutic alliance um in your opinion how does that process unfold what are the elements um that have to be present for for that um healing for healing to take place that's a, a wonderful question. You know, when people come to therapy, oftentimes they look for the psychotherapist to, you know, not only guide them, but to, to, to be the first, the initial space creator. And, you know, part of what's healing and what facilitates healing is what a client brings, what the other person brings to that space. So there has to be some equality in that. And, what creates that therapeutic container? What are the elements I feel are, are very, very important to, to the facilitation of not only co-creating it, but also in where the healing starts is when there's presence and a, a person comes to therapy willing, um, and, and willing to be in the moment, willing to, to, to delve deep to expand themselves so that they're ready to shed all of the, what they're afraid of to all the preconceived notions that they've heard, what therapy is like, or what they went on my website and they saw me first and thought, Oh, she's this, or she's that to shed all of that and just be in the moment of each other's energy. And it, to me, that essence of healing begins that therapeutic alliance, you know, of course, receptivity, how opened we both are to, um, being with each other, how open we are to each other's suggestions and to the energetic flow or the direction that the therapy is going in, you know, which is client led, but it comes from, again, this participatory co-created spiritual place mm -hmm. where we're ready and we're receptive, we're present and we're in the moment of that. 
The alliance is built on on, on that equal co-created trust that I can what I need is inside of me mm-hmm. and you're going to help me move that move through that. Well, you're going to help me ignite that in me so that we can discover ways only I know my limitations and only I know what's going to work for me. And you're going to help me discover that. And so we can work through that together. And I trust that I'm in the right space at the right time. It truly is exceptional. And when, when two people, that moment where there's true healing and there's true trust and the alliance, the rapport really starts to form that the co-created therapeutic container gets stronger and stronger and it gets more open to what needs, what will fill it and what needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like this therapeutic container is a, is a third element that's available between the therapist and the client. Yes. And it's not only, you know, initiated uh, by the therapist initially, you know, at the, at the onset of therapy, the client needs to come to um, therapy already ready to do those things, ready to, to be present, to be receptive and to begin the alliance. And I, when I look back at, you know, years of psychotherapy, like what, what, what were the characteristics of clients who really made therapeutic nominal therapeutic progress, like whose lives changed, who, you know, brought themselves to a space where they were, were feeling better, where they were higher functioning, where they were more content. And I, you know, look back at those characteristics and I'm like, because they came to therapy, you know, ready. And I'm not saying like locked and loaded where I have all the answers and I know what I have to do, but that I've thought about it. I'm not going to let psychotherapy happen to me. I'm going to be an active participant in it. And I think coming with that mindset, seeing your work through that lens helps to shape that container. And in many ways, this is much more empowering than what a lot of people feel like psychotherapy is. Is this some kind of mind control? Some of them think that, or some of them might think, oh, does this really help? What's the point of therapy? Really, a, a large part of it is what the client brings in and their willingness to realize that the elements of, of their own healing is within them. Yes, that we what I need to heal myself, the things that I need to heal, to facilitate healing, to cultivate healing are inside of me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in this space, we're going to tap them out. Mm-hmm. We're going to tease them out, you know, and we're going to, we're going to move towards a towards healing. And there's, you know, so much in that there's intuition, Mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's desire, there's, um, you know, things like my commitment to therapy. And there's a lot of factors and sub factors involved in that. But I think willingness, receptivity, presence, and the the co-creation of that alliance being, you know, ready to do that is are probably the my top three. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a very empowering narrative. Phyllis, how do you how do you describe to your clients um, your style, sort of your approach to therapy? Because I, you know, th- there are many types and techniques out there. Um, and when people ask you how you um, do, you specialize in any any particular methodologies. How do you typically uh, describe your process? It's so interesting because when you um, like join websites like directories and websites like psychology today, they'll ask like, what are your specialties? What techniques do you use? And it's, I I always find that very interesting or a client will call and say, you know, someone will inquire, do you do DBT? Do you do CBT? Are you this kind of therapist? Are you that kind of therapist? And I always say this, tell me what you're looking for. And you know, I, my approach to therapy is that it should be client led And that based on what the information you provide to me of what your needs are, what you're struggling with and where you want to go, then I will tailor or customize that to suit their needs. Because, you know, if CBT techniques, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, you know, might work with one person, they might not work with someone else. You know, someone else may not be open to just the idea of that and want something more interactive or less inside my head and more in my behavior. So, you know, it depends. I, I like it to be very client led. 
And it's a very eclectic blend of what I've learned. And just, you know, I, I consider myself very intuitive. So I can, you know, sometimes go with my own clinical intuition of what techniques I think would work good, you know, would work well with someone, what they would be open to, how they would respond. And oftentimes, you know, I, I might think it's one way. And then as I get to know someone better, it's revealed to me that something else will work. And usually it's, uh, again, you know, just led by the client based on their conversation, what they're looking for, you know, where their level of functioning is. So I, I think that that's probably, you know, what I am, I'm more holistic and I come from a very spiritual place and I allow the client to tell me about spirituality before I bring it in. I let them bring it in first so that I know that it would be welcomed and that they're receptive to it. But I, I use a, a myriad of of years of bits and pieces of what I've learned and what I've incorporated that I know is, you know, what a client is looking for in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, before we move on to the next question, I'm just, just, you know, using words as empathy and intuition nowadays, um, you know, it could mean so many different things. Uh, what is intuition uh, to you? What does it mean? To me, intuition is a way of knowing without knowing how I know, mm. <laughs> you know, like, like when I see someone and they're, it's not a message or channeling. I, you know, wish I could say it was that, mm -hmm. but it's energy. You know, I'm, my energy is reading your energy and I'm getting information based on your presence mm. and your essence. And, you know, this is my the, the best way that I can describe it. And I, I hope that it makes sense to your listeners that it's a feeling that I get. And then I take a moment to think, what is this feeling? And then it, it, I get some information and I don't know how I know to do that. Mm. For instance, I'll give you an example. If I'm working, if I don't know a client very well, maybe it is the first or second time that they've come to me for session and we're talking and I'm, you know, I get this feeling like I need to ask about a specific sibling or a maternal grandparent. And it, it, you know, inevitably is impactful, has had an impact negative or positive on this client. Why would I, why would that feeling come to me if we were talking about some work situation or they were explaining something else to me? It's a way of knowing something without knowing how I know it's not in anything. The client said, it's not in anything that any paperwork that they would do beforehand or in the intake, you know, it's not a, a conclusion that I've drawn. It's, it's a, a knowing that I get. And it happens when I'm very, very connected to someone's energy and 100% in the moment when there's that co-created healing environment and it's two people present in that spiritual, exceptional, transpersonal space between the two of us and we are, we are connected mm -hmm. is when I get the most intuitive information. And it really does help guide where the sessions are going. Mm-hmm. Phyllis, in your opinion, is this um, in intuitive abilities is something that can be trained? I mean, we live in a society that it seems that the left brain function sort of analytical mode is is highly celebrated. And perhaps these sort of intuitive skills are uh, a little bit less um, less familiar with and, and, and perhaps, you know, often just not even um, an area of focus in education. Is this something that can be trained? Yeah, I mean, I definitely. Definitely think that psycho spiritual practices, yoga, meditation, Reiki, you know, um, even massage therapists, meditation, mindfulness, those are ways to increase it. And I think that in practice and learning to, you know, we all have intuition. And I think to how we can train someone is to, to, to how we can harness it and really train it, you know, I think would be in, in cultivating practices in, you know, giving some guidelines and really learning to trust early on those intuitive moments that you have. And I mean, you can ask any therapist who would tell you, you know, that they have clinical intuitions and that they've gotten feelings about what to ask clients and directions to go in and have been very successful. And there's sometimes when, you know, maybe you're not right but that you have to learn to trust it enough to ask and you have to do it in a way that's through the lens of, you know, appropriateness and respect for the 
profession and for the person and to weigh whether or not it is a good question to ask. And, you know, is it, is it appropriate for me to ask at this moment? And that comes with practice. And I think training would come in, in the form of clinical supervision during supervision, you know, certainly a piece of that could be, you know, let's go through your cases. You know, we talk about the code of ethics. We talk about dual relationships and HIPAA violations, confidentiality, you know, documentation. But let's talk about your clinical intuition. And when you get those insights, how do you, how do you feel about them? And is it something that, you know, you want to do like any other kinds of technique that you would use? Is it something that you feel comfortable with? Is it something that you want to cultivate that you want to fine tune? Is it a skill you want to hone? And if a supervisee says yes, you know, or a therapist or even a seasoned therapist who's like, you know, I always do that, but I didn't really know anybody else did because it's not very mainstream. You know, I, I think it certainly can be discussed and channeled and, and, and fine tuned and brought to a space where we could, you know, definitely come up with some techniques and, and more guidance on how to cultivate it and, and when, and when not to use it. So training clinical intuition, that sounds amazing. Um, so that means, uh, that the therapists have, have to be working on themselves outside of that therapeutic alliance, because then what they bring in into the, into that therapeutic space can, uh, influence, um, um, the healing process. Um, and yeah, yes, Thal, absolutely. And, you know, it's important to note that if I'm having energy reading, if I'm having a, a reaction, a response somatically to you, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you are to me. And I have to respect that too. Mm-hmm. So yes, we need to have, you know, c- clinical supervision outside and therapy outside of our own practice so that we can one unload, you know, everybody's energy and, and all the things that we're working on with all our clients to bounce cases off of someone else, but also to work on ourselves ongoing all the time. I don't think it's something that you do for X amount of years after licensure. I think it's something you need to do for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you work with different modalities. Um, one of them, you're a, you're a trained uh, sand play therapist. And um, maybe can you talk to us about what, what, plant, what sand play therapy is? Sand play therapy is an amazing modality in which there's sand, which, you know, is the earth that we're all very familiar with, you know, when you feel it on the bottom of your feet or, you know, just how therapeutic something that that organic can be. And it was um, developed, you know, many, many years ago by a woman who trained under Jung, Mm -hmm. Carl Jung, and it is a, a fascinating wonderful modality to process trauma Mm -hmm. and issues, you know, that someone may be having anxiety or depressive symptoms, you know, but especially for trauma without words. So there's a specific tray that we use. That's a standard size, a regulation tray. And then we have all of these miniature um, symbols, these miniature objects that are really archetypal symbols. Mm-hmm. Because if we, we look at Jung and we look at what he taught us, you know, it's that the collective unconscious and that there are symbols and there are archetypes that we have that are based on and shaped by our own personal experience. But then he believes that there are, you know, ones that we are, that are innately inherently inside of us simply because we're human. Mm. And, you know, those are, are amazing little miniatures and symbols that we use and they're so powerful. And so a client would come to my office, either, you know, adult or child, and needless to say, children gravitate toward the sand, like you, you know, it's amazing. Mm. And so we, we look, we have to really tease out two things here. When, when I'm holding on to something and I'm aware of it, it's very powerful and it's bigger than me. And, you know, the more I talk about it and the more I process it with someone and I externalize it, its power gets minimized. Mm -hmm. It decreases. So sand play 
light therapy for a child. Let's just use a child as an example of, you know, this, this situation. So we're going to say it's a child who comes to me who maybe years and years and years before, you know, as an infant, there was some sort of abuse or something happened to them. And that was at a time before they had language or had acquired language to articulate that trauma. So how are they going to talk about it? How, how is this going to happen for them? You know, if our body remembers on a cellular level, we have memory of our trauma, of our childhoods, of our, our life, maybe even in the womb, you know, so how are we going to articulate that at this time before there was words? And, and because the sand and the miniatures are representative of our unconscious and what's inside of us, it comes out in this narrative, in this story through these archetypal objects and these symbolic objects. So someone will, you know, unguided begin to build a tray, which means this is the therapeutic container, you know, is, is myself, the office, you know, the space between the two of us, the sand, the hands, you know, the miniatures, the, the lighting. And sometimes, you know, people want to build trays to music. So they pick music that they like and they just build and they create this extraordinary world in a, in a sandbox you know, on wheels that, that can turn around, that can spin. And when they're done, they tell you the story of what's happening, of what this world is that they created. And as each of those, those segments of the story unfolds, the trauma gets smaller and smaller because it's coming from that cellular memory place. It's coming from that primordial moment before I, I, from my ancestors, from archetypes from the collective unconscious and it's coming from what's processed and happened to me, you know, before I could even have language to tell you. Um, when I do it with adults, they'll, you know, oftentimes ask me about it and then ask me if they can do it. And then they get very emotional and, you know, tell me, go for like childhood objects and maybe things that are representative of what's happening in their life now or in relationships. It is a beautiful experience and honestly an honor and a privilege to witness because the, the, the mind struggles you know, with pain and emotional, intense emotional pain. And, you know, we have to process it. And, and at some point, that's just the way our psyches work. It will force us to, it'll keep knocking until we actually process it. So this is a wonderful, imaginative, um, creative, therapeutic way to process what we're dealing with, what we're struggling with, without using any words. Phyllis, I, I'd love to ask you, um, just considering people that might not even have uh, experience working with a therapist, how, how do you understand trauma? What is trauma and how might you describe that to somebody who's, who's approaching this um, uh, for the first time? Well, you know, Adrian, there's so many facets to trauma. I mean, if I saw a car accident on the corner of my block you know, that could traumatize me and someone was injured or just the loud noise of it, or, you know, holding my breath that second when I saw two cars collide would be vicarious trauma. You know, if someone that I love goes through something, an illness, or, you know, and I see, I care about this person and we're very close and I see that something's happening for them and I, I'm affected by it, you know, that's traumatizing to someone that could impede and, 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 and interfere with my everyday functioning because it's something that's wounded me somehow. It's pain that I've held on from something that's either happened specifically to me or I witnessed that's impacted me negatively. And I don't, it hurts me when I think about it. When I think about this event or this relationship or, you know, this childhood that I've had, this relationship with someone in my life when I was a child who, you know, affected me in a way that was negative, trauma could be really ongoing. 
And that's why it's important, even in education, especially in education and especially with children, that we, you know, for, for our educators, for our psychotherapists that work with kids, social workers, school psychologists, whoever, any collateral contact that works, works with a child or an adolescent. I th- especially for education, though, for educators to ask, instead of saying, what's wrong with you, to come from a space of what's happened to you. Mm-hmm. Because we have to understand that someone's experience brings them to where they are. And we want to be able to meet people where they are. And as a psychotherapist, you have to understand when someone sits down in that space, either next to you or, you know, cause kids like to sit next to us, um, you know, or sitting across from us when someone sits with us, they're sitting down physically. It's one person, but it's all the people in their lives that have affected them in some way. So one person sits down, but there could be 15 people in the room mm. and we have to be able to, to say, you know, instead of, Oh, what's the matter with this? What's, what's wrong with this client? We have to think trauma through the lens of trauma informed psychotherapy. You know, where, where have you been? Mm. You know, what's happened to you? And it just changes and shifts the dynamic and it shifts the perspective of the way that you see someone. It comes from the heart. And I think that that's something, you know, people have to remember. Psychotherapy is a science, you know, psychology is a science, but it's the science of people Mm -hmm. and people come from the heart. And we have to remember that that's where they speak from. That's where they process from. That's where their pain lies, you know, and we, we have to be able to, to remember that. So speaking of, of like all the elements seem to include play, spontaneity and, um, um, and people. And so that has to do with relationships and which takes us to our next question. Um, a lot of people, have struggled and continue to struggle with toxic relationships. How would you define toxic relationships? A toxic relationship is a relationship and it can be a limited relationship. It doesn't have to be an intimate relationship that has a negative impact on a person. And, you know, oftentimes toxic relationships are, we really have to change the way we look at that too because we want to blame someone and we have to remove that from the equation because it's not a matter of blame. Mm. It's not a matter of, you know, whose fault it is. We have to look at in the relationship between two people where maybe the power isn't equal or there's, you know, some strain on the relationship or, you know, one person is suffering from mental illness and is acting out towards this other person, you know, and doesn't even know it. Um, or maybe someone loves someone and wants to be with them and the other person doesn't. And, but yet they're together. And so in in toxic relationships, and I'm using air quotes, although you can't see me (laughs) toxic relationships, I think what we're looking at is unhealthy Yeah, and it's unhealthy because it doesn't speak to my best self. Because when I'm in this relationship, I'm less than who I really am and who my, what my best potential is as a person. It stifles me, it minimizes me, and it makes me smaller than who I really am. You know, people are, 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 they have such light and such energy to them and, and negative relationships really try to snuff out someone's spiritual flame. And, you know, when I think of, of negative relationships, toxic relationships, unhealthy relationships, somehow or another, we manage to stay in them longer, you know, well beyond when we should. And we have to look at why. Mm. And this is why I say we need to take one of the reasons why we need to take blame out of the equation, because me being in this toxic relationship and even aware that it's, and I'm aware that it's not healthy, Um, and I'm staying in it longer than I should, I'm benefiting from it in some way. Absolutely. By being in this relationship, there's some benefit to me, you know, and I may not even be aware of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The word that's coming to my mind is, uh, also codependent relationships. Could you, could you share with listeners what that might mean and how that would work, work out in, as an example? 
Sure. And, you know, Adrian, that's a term that's used a lot in, in addiction because, you know, um, codependent would be like an enabler, like, you know, technically, I think traditionally, when we look at codependence, we look at, you know, that like the need to save the need to really help someone. And because we want to love and nurture and care about this person, we allow them the space and the time to do what it is that they do that has a negative impact on us. Codependency could, you know, have many masks, many phases. And I, I, you know, I, we can do a whole podcast just on codependency, <laughs> but I believe that that it's so true, but I, I, and I, it's so interesting because I see it in families and it's very uh, oftentimes not really looked at through that lens, you know, uh, of family relationships, mm-hmm. that there is certain codependent behaviors that are evident, evidenced in a family dynamic you know, where the, the one person maybe isn't well, and then the child really parentified, the parentified child really cares for that parent. Mm -hmm. And then the, the role is confused. And, but how does that adult child benefit from parenting their parent? We have to look at that too. This relationship fulfills my need to nurture my need to, to heal. And I don't know how to move from that. I don't know how to detach from that emotionally. And I think that's in a lot of relationships that are not healthy, detachment, fear of abandonment, fear of being alone. Um, you know, your own independent mental health and wellness is not really where it should be because you've been snuffed out or stifled, you know, or in this shaped your, your psyche has been shaped in in this negative atmosphere. And so it it hasn't been able to grow properly, you know, like a plant that's not nearly in the light enough, it will twist and vine around it's misshapen. And I think sometimes, you know, kids that come to me with anxieties and, you know, or the parentified child, you know, they're like that twisted vine, you know, they're not, they're misshapen. And it's, it takes a lot to get them to the space where they need to get where they, a parent needs to back back down and see, okay, this is, I, I can accept my role and, you know, try to, to, to work with kids to kind of not be afraid. Um, so that's what I think about toxic relationships and codependency. There is, it's another example of a co-created relationship, you know, because initially maybe it was, it was facilitated by one person, but the, the dynamic now is, is co-created. And so, so working on moving that shifting that kind of energy is a process and it takes time. And I, you know, tell people there's no magic wand, but if you are committed and willing, you can certainly get where you need to get, but this is going to take time. Mm. Um, I just love the metaphors that you're using to describe all these dynamics. Um, and without really being stuck with um, terminologies. I want us to also maybe touch upon um, the borderline personality structure. I don't want to call it a disorder. <laughs> um, that, you know, all these um, uh, personality structures are a, a, a way of an ego defense mechanism, just like the codependency. So uh, what, what, like, what can you say about the borderline, basically? Well, it depends on, you know, like everything, the degree to which someone is in one direction. And I think that personality disorders, you know, I look at them as like autism spectrum disorder, like Mm -hmm. on a spectrum Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I agree that you have it or you don't, but somewhere in there, there is, uh, you know, it's either very intense or not. So I think that, that if we look at, let's just say borderline personality disorder per se, there are certain characteristics to, to that. And, you know, we can talk in extremes, um, that are very difficult for family members and people who are close to employers and coworkers living with someone who has a, bip- uh, a, a borderline personality disorder symptoms is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it is easy to get, you know, I, I want to say sucked into the, the web 
of histrionics and drama. And, you know, the universe, in my opinion, the universe, I'm sure there's no study on this, but <laughs> like, I, I do believe that the universe hears that, that, that gravitation towards emotion, high emotion to high drama, to histrionics, to problems, to obstacles, you know, the universe takes a little snapshot of what it is that you're thinking. And that's why we, we have to really monitor our own thoughts. And if I'm always thinking the worst, the hardest, the longest, the craziest, the, you know, the most dramatic, the the most tumultuous relationship, the most passionate lovemaking, the most, you know, the, I was waiting the longest online, you know, the, those kinds of things that the universe takes a snapshot of that. And so that's what it gives you. Mm -hmm. And I think that constant state of thinking so, so chaotically is what the universe then provides. And it perpetuates the lifestyle of someone who has a borderline personality disorder. And, you know, it, 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 you can really detect it, um, early on, although we don't like to, but you can see features or like uh, borderline personality disorder flavors in, in adolescence, mm. you know, there are certain behaviors and, and, you know, thought processes and just the, the way that their mind strategizes and, you know, the, the, it's always me and this is happening to me and, you know, the, you know, all of it, it's always a snowstorm, but a blizzard, you know, their, their scope will go up and look around the room and see where is the most, you know, where's the heat, where's the electricity, that's where I'm going to gravitate towards. And it is on a very non-conscious level. It's, a, it's, it's, you know, just an energetic level. And so life is very chaotic and very sad and relationships, um, and relationships are, are, are navigated by, you know, control. Hmm. And how can I make this manipulate and make this relationship everything that I need? And it's really, in my opinion, very underlying fear of, of, of being alone, of abandonment. So I will keep my people with me for as long as I possibly can forever. You're never going to leave me and I'll do anything I can to see to it that you stay with me. And those relationships are very difficult. Um, you know, children of, of parents who have had or were diagnosed or un, gone undiagnosed with borderline personality disorder, similar to adults who were children of alcoholics, you know, have a, a, a whole other host of issues that they deal with going into adolescence and adulthood, emerging adulthood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, when we ask someone's history, you know, uh, it's not only biological, but to see what runs in your family, you know, only because uh, essentially, because I want to know, you know, what's, where are you coming from? What's happened to you? And so if I fight, if, if you tell me that you, you grew up in a household with a parent that, you know, or was diagnosed or is diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, then, you know, I, I, it, it sheds a whole new light on, on the situation. So it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult. And my advice is that everybody be in therapy, that there's family therapy, that there's in-home therapy mm -hmm. would be extremely helpful because the, the family would get engaged and, you know, you're seeing the dynamic in its natural habitat. So very interesting, very revealing, but every member of the family should have individual and family counseling. It would be, you know, to me, that's the, the real way to do that is the most effective. Phyllis, uh, in, in the psychological circles, I've noticed that borderline personality specifically is a bit, it seems a bit stigmatized. And I wanted to ask you, are there hidden gifts to people that might actually have a strong borderline tendency um, that might be helpful to work with? Oh, absolutely. And you know, it, Adrian, isn't it true that every mental illness is just an extension of, you know, something we all, all are experiencing? Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just the difference is it's chronic. It's bigger than me. It's interfering with my everyday functioning. It's interfering with relationships. And that's where the difference lies in the end of the spectrum. It's further down the spectrum of some of our own behaviors. 
And so what are the gifts? I would, if manipulation could be a gift, if, if just the sense of how to navigate a situation with fine tuned, heightened sensory, um, abilities, amazing, you know, there are many gifts to that. And, and just like observing and assessing a situation or a person finding, being able to hone in on someone's strengths and weaknesses, also a gift, uh, in relationships, you know, where uh, even in marital relationships and intimate relationships, you know, being able to, to detect what it is and anticipate what the other partner needs is very high on the gift skill. I think of, of someone who may be suffering with that type of disorder. Uh, that's, um, very important that you mentioned those things because, you know, that brings in the role of empathy in, uh, difficult relationships. Um, and it seems like borderline personality disorder now is, is the thing that everybody's talking about and everybody's realizing. And, and there is a very negative side to it. And, um, a lot of people that suffer with borderline also suffer from suicidal, um, thoughts or people that are living with a borderline suffer from suicidal thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. and which takes us to our next topic, which, um, uh, I know that you lecture nationwide in the United States, um, around the topic of suicidology and its connection with, uh, youth issues. Um, what can you say about that, please? Well, I just want to, I, w- I will tell you about that in a moment, okay. but I just want to say that, you know, as far as the stigma of mental health is concerned, it's with every diagnosis right. and it's with every disorder. And, you know, people have gifts, period. You know, we were talking about, I think we went from negative relationships to negative relationships and borderline personality disorder, but any mental health issue deserves respect and deserves to be, you know, that person deserves treatment and they deserve to feel proud about that, you know, and, and I certainly in any way, you know, I work really hard to diffuse and break the stigma of Mm -hmm. mental health. And I think there are people are people and they are not their diagnoses. Mm just like they're not their mistakes, you know? So we, that's something that I, I want to make perfectly clear. And I, 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 there are people who specialize psychotherapists who, who have really specialized in working with that population. Mm -hmm. And if you are suffering or someone, you know, is suffering with a borderline personality disorder, finding someone who is specializing in that area would be amazing. That would be my recommendation because it's some, it's a very dynamic topic. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, we're getting more and more information about it. And so it'd be someone who would be very passionate about working with that population. Mm-hmm. So, um, I just want to say that. Thank so you. in, and, and any, any, you know, when we talk about suicide, we have to look at, you know, whether it's adult or, or adolescent or child, we have to look at risk factors and, you know, it, one of the risk factors is clinical. If you have a mental health diagnosis, any kind, you are at higher risk for suicide. If you are in a relationship with someone who who is struggling and that, or has a health issue, not only a mental health issue, but an illness, or, you know, you're in a relationship that isn't working. There's some situation where that's causing high anxiety or, you know, depressive symptoms or, you know, some turmoil in your life. It puts you at risk for suicide. Certainly exposure to suicide, exposure to loss will hike you right up the list of risk factors. And, you know, being in a relationship with someone who has attempted and that level of, of, um, exposure to suicide or loss can really be a, a, one of the biggest risk factors. Um, you know, uh, also recently there's been some good research coming out of, um, I think it's Yale actually about non-suicidal self-injurious behavior Hmm. originally was not connected to suicide at all. For many years, it was like, you know, their self-injurious behaviors isn't really related to suicide. And, and, you know, Thomas Joyner and some of the other suicidologists are really looking at, you know, the connection between behaviors and threshold for pain and injury, self-injury, and, and its intersection with suicidal ideation and behavior. I was just going to ask you uh, if you can give an example. I'm just thinking of, is that the same as just uh, bad, bad choices, like bad, you know, uh, unhealthy behaviors that's leading to a slow death? Is that 
what that considered or is that different? Um, I think that that's different because there are certain components. Suicide is a very complicated issue. You know, it, it, even when we look at suicidology in the field of psychology, it's over like out, out there in, in the field by itself. Mm. You know, there are many, many, many reasons why someone would contemplate suicide or attempt suicide. And it is very multi-determinational. It's multi-layered. It's never one reason why. It's mostly always more than one reason why. And those risk factors like clinical and you know, exposure and history, family history, access to means, situations, you know, um, those come together like the perfect storm. And somewhere in the middle of that, you know, it starts to lay the groundwork. When we look at the working definition of suicide, it's an attempt to solve a seemingly unsolvable problem with intense emotional pain and impaired problem-solving skills. So what is it, what is it that that really means is that when someone wants to die by suicide, wants to hurt themselves, to kill themselves, they don't want to die. They want to end that intense emotional pain because in the moment of crisis thinking, there's, you know, characteristics to suicidal thinking. And, you know, one of them is, is crisis thinking when someone's stuck in crisis thinking, you know, they can't get back up to helpful problem solving skills. So they get stuck in unhelpful problem solving skills. And then there's some triggering event and suicide becomes an option. There's an irrational component to it. There's an impulse component to it. You know, suicidal thinking can be ambivalent um, or, you know, even sending a message at sometimes. So when we look at all of that, we have to understand that within this complicated issue, you know, what it really is. And, and when someone is suffering from that intense emotional pain, they don't realize at the moment in crisis thinking that it's only temporary, that this pain isn't going to last forever, that there are ways that I could, you know, help myself, that I could, I could maybe alleviate this. I need to ask for help. I need to reach, you know, externalize and reach out of that pain and ask someone for help. And, you know, to know how to, to where to find the resources like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number, the 741-741 crisis text line, you know, those are, you can just text and say, I need help. I feel like I'm going to hurt myself. Talking about it is very relieving. And we know that from survivors of suicide attempt, that once they talk about it, they feel better about it. And it actually buys you some time because there isn't that impulsivity component to suicidal behavior. There's a sense of not belonging. There's a sense of burdensomeness, you know, to family and friends, not feeling connected to anyone or anything. And, you know, that adds up and that's all part of the uh, suicidology theories, you know, that feeling of, of that sense of not belonging. And that's why it's so important for us when we look at youth suicide, it's so important for us to really, you know, encourage our kids to join something in the community and schools, sports, to be connected to something and to find that trusted adult, that caring, trusted adult to have that connection with. And those are the two biggest protective factors for not only suicide, but other risk behaviors like substance abuse. We have in, in our country right now, and in specifically in the county that I live in, in the neighboring counties, we have a very big opiate epidemic going on. And the same risk factors, warning signs, and protective factors for suicide are the same ones that we could apply to, to substance abuse and other risk behaviors. Mm-hmm. I imagine um, people that want to direct, whether it's friends or family members, towards help, there, there could be resistance. Often there's resistance to help. Um, what can you offer uh, for, for, for those who are trying to, if they see someone who's suffering and they want to bring them to a therapist or a counselor, how do we, how do we help, help them get, get over that obstacle or the resistance? That's a great question. And I, I, you know, and resistance is difficult. And I'm going to say, don't give up you know, don't give up. You have to keep asking. And I think we, we need to explain to people because they think if, if you tell someone that you have suicidal thoughts, you know, suicidal ideation is very common. 
and it's more common than we think. And in the, you know, the Centers for Disease Control do a youth risk survey. I think it's 12.5% of, of 100,000 youth were thinking about suicide. So it's, it's pretty common. And when we tell someone, you know, listen, I know you're struggling, you know, whatever you're struggling with, you're not the only one. When we, we, we can find something that might be suited for you. Therapy doesn't always mean, doesn't always look like me and you, you know, you and some old guy, you know, sitting across from each other, you know, or like, but they think Freud, you know, maybe my back to you and you're lying on a couch but that there's art therapy, music therapy, drama therapy, there's sand play therapy and all these different psychodrama, all these different modalities that work really well and that we can find one that will work for you. And you're not alone. Individual therapy is amazing and group therapy is amazing. So there are wonderful support groups for survivors of suicide attempt and also for survivors of suicide loss. The, um, you know, that, that I'm sure that you can find in your, uh, Canadian resources that are amazing and, and not to give up, to keep asking the person, you know, we here in the United States have uh, organizations that, um, provide in-home therapy services and that, you know, people feel more comfortable in the privacy of their own home. You know, it could be over Skype. There are so many ways and so many different modalities and avenues that you can go to that you could explain to someone just because you're thinking about suicide doesn't mean you're going to end up hospitalized because that's another myth, you know, and the number one myth surrounding suicide is if we talk to someone about suicide, we're planting the idea of suicide in their head. And that is the number one myth surrounding suicide. Mm -hmm. Thank you. These are very, um, important and heavy topics really that we touched upon today. Um, uh, before closing, um, since we're talking about relationships, I, I'm thinking about couples therapy and, um, and communication. What is the role of proper communication in a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship? Well, I, I, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> Let's solve that today, I please. Mean, you know, if we could bottle that, boy, would we be okay. I'm going to tell you that I think you hit the nail on the head, Thal, by just putting the word communication in there. You know, n- nine out of 10 times the issue is communication. And I don't think people realize uh, from what I see, it's very difficult for couples to get out of the habit of the way that they're used to arguing. When we disagree, this is what he says. This is what I say. This is how he acts or she acts and I act. And, you know, in, in, in all different kinds of relationships, you know, male and male, male and female, like however you identify that you get stuck in a pattern or a habit when, when you want to talk about something and that every conversation is in a confrontation, Mm. but I'm immediately in defense mode because every conversation I have with you ends in an argument or, you know, slamming the door and sleeping alone or being in the doghouse, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't want that to happen. So I won't communicate or, you know, I'm not ready to talk about it right now. And I don't know how to tell you that. So I'm shutting down and you're following me around the house, wanting to get out of everything you need to say. So I think people need to put, you know, when we talk about communication in couples, I try to help teach couples to argue differently and to communicate on a different level and shed those old patterns, those old habits so that, that they can have positive conversations that are meaningful and that respect each other. Cause that's so important that a person feel heard and respected and not judged. And that my issue, you know, whether it's about something that happened at work or with the kids or, you know, with us, is not minimized by your judgment? And, you know, it's so important that a person feels like what they have to say weighs more than what I'm not saying Mm. that I'm, that you're hearing what I'm saying as a, um, you know, a, an insight to what I need from you emotionally. And can you meet my emotional needs or, or maybe you don't want to anymore. And sometimes when relationships 
aren't working and it's not what one person wants. One person really wants the, the, the relationship to sustain that communication that's negative, you know, it, it isn't going to work. So, so we have to look at when, when couples, when I meet with couples for the first time, I, the first question I ask is, does everybody want to stay together? Mm. You know, do you both want to be in this relationship? You know, so, cause if the answer is yes, then we're going to roll our sleeves up. We're going to get in it and we're going to really do some homework and we're going to, you know, make the commitment. It's just like joining a gym, you know, for the first time, you have to learn all the machines. You have to figure out what works for you, what doesn't work for you, what exercise is beneficial for you, what hurts too much, you know, and, and do I feel comfortable doing this? What do I like? What do I not like? We have to rediscover each other as people, not just my wife or my husband or my partner, you know, we have to look at who you are and how am I connected to you? And if I don't feel connected to you, how can I get reconnected to you? If that's what we both want. And that's the essence of successful couples counseling, because it's what we both want. And we're both willing and receptive to making some changes that are hard to do so that we can, our relationship can sustain, you know, all the waves of greatness and, you know, things in our lives that happen that aren't so great. Mm, amazing. Phyllis, I'd love to leave our listeners with some resources. Um, what, what's on your, your, your list of heavily recommended books, um, for, for the people that you work with? Uh, okay. Well, codependent, no more always. You know, that, that book is very old and, and my, my partner in, in practice and I always, you know, giggle about it because we're like, did I, did you write down the Bible? Because that is such a, a great book for someone who, you know, is in a relationship and wants to make changes. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, uh, oh my gosh, there's so many, I think everyone should read Irvin Yalom. Um, the gift of therapy. I think that that's amazing. That's a book that I would recommend to anyone who wanted to learn about being in the here and now and having to be in the present and, and getting maybe, a looking at psychotherapy from, from a therapist's lens would be great. Um, would offer some great insight. Um, and I think those are my top two right now. There's a eyes wide open by, um, Mariana Kaplan, which is also an, another wonderful book about bringing spirituality into session, uh, which is also very beautiful. And any clinician who wants to learn about intuition, Terry Marks, I think it's Terry Marks Harlow. She has some really great workbooks and, um, and some, some good insights into how to incorporate intuition and how to not be afraid of your own intuition. She's done tremendous work and continues to do tremendous work in that area. Thank you. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I just want to say that if you or anyone, you know, is struggling either in a relationship or with something within themselves, or, you know, that, that therapy can be an amazing experience. Um, it, it can be even just like a polishing of the skills that you already have. You don't have to have any kind of problem. You could just want to take your life a step further. You just want to maybe gain some insight or, you know, hone your psycho-spiritual skills and, and interests that it's a beautiful space. Um, there are some wonderful Reiki practitioners that, you know, that's another great modality that I use as an adjunct to talk therapy, like sand play therapy, because it's, it gives people a great way to learn to be in the moment of themselves, to feel their own bodies, their own energy, to learn to breathe, um, to do some, you know, wonderful, mindful breath work and, and understand that. And I'll leave you know, you with this, that everything we need to heal ourselves is inside of us. And sometimes we just have to reach out outside of us externally to figure out how to tap into that. Amazing. Thank you. Phyllis, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful experience and I was so happy to do it. And I feel very grateful and blessed to have had the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.
sends me off to school. Binti, she says, don't let any boy fool with your heart, for some boys like to plant lies on some girls' hearts. She tells me this and plants a kiss between my eyes that almost took the morning sun by surprise and its light must have landed on my forehead. But I will meet you when I'm no longer a little bent and I will let you fool with my heart and steal the sunlight from between my eyes. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find links and show notes at soulspacepodcast.com. Next week, we talk to Andrew Dunn about digital wellness and conscious entrepreneurship. Please support us by leaving us a review on iTunes. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Until next time.